And in mere moments, this podcast will transport you from my home office to the Displains Theater. But first, this is a time when I think we're all trying to find ways to cut costs, save money, do better by ourselves. Solar power is the way to go. And my friend, Brent Sopel, former NHL player, former Blackhawk, Stanley Cup winner, Brent Sopel, is your guy. He can help you make that a reality for zero money down. You can start saving money on your electric bill right after installation of solar. Increase your home value. And between the tax credits, both federal and state of Illinois tax credits can amount to close to 50% in savings with a 25-year warranty. You have nothing to lose by just getting a consultation from my friend, Brent Sopel. Go to Sopel, S-O-P-E-L, solar.com. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show. James Van Osdell. So I'm in displays right now. This is Car Con Carne. I'm James Van Osdell, or Midge Van Osdell, really, if you want to play that game fit enough yeah james <laughs> phonetically flipped uh-huh uh, i'm in displays tonight as i'm recording this you may watch this or hear this afterwards tonight at the displays theater it's howard jones and that man right there he is mid your uh this is about as far as it gets from a dark dark night this is going to be a glorious night this is going to be <laughs> a celebratory night it is indeed yes so mid your we know you from Ultra Box, Ultra Box, Ultra Vox. We know you from Visage. We know you from your solo work. We know you from Band-Aid. We know you from Live Aid. We know you from Live 8. We know you from a whole mess of things. And here you are on stage tonight at the Displays Theater. I got to say, we live in this weird time, Midge, where information is everywhere. You can find out whatever you want to know. I've already, I can't help myself. I already peeked at the set list sure. for tonight. I, I miss being surprised at shows. And I, I have this mental issue that prevents me from allowing surprises at shows. I, I, I need to know what the artists are going to play. Looking at what you're playing tonight in advance, uh, very Ultravox heavy, not complaining. Yep. Is that because you're part of this package and you want to like hit, just blast the hits? Or how do you how do you go about a set list? Because you have so much to pull from. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a wealth of material you can, you can dive into, delve into. But what Howard came to me about a year ago and asked me if I, if I would do this tour. He, he wanted to do a very kind of technology-heavy tour. And I thought, yeah, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. And, I, I, you know, I love Howard. We've been friends for a long time. And I thought, well, it, when, you, when it's not your audience, you know, you've got to be careful about what you play. I'm not here to educate people. I'm not going to say, here's a... Here's a fantastic seven-minute-long instrumental. <laughs> you know, are you just going to get you know, day, you know, glazed looks or people wandering off to go to the concession stands or whatever? So you kind of try and keep it as as memorable as possible. And I I delved back into uh, the old catalogue and thought, well, the demographic they'll remember MTV when they used to play videos and some of these songs were played on MTV. There's a good chance someone might know them. So I've kept it kind of fairly ultravox bit of visage and a bit of solo stuff. But, uh, you know, 45 minutes. I'm making it as difficult for Howard to follow me as possible. That's it, right? Yeah, why not? You know, I'm sure he would do exactly the same with me. You mentioned technology. I mean, obviously, you've been around for a few decades. How important is it for an artist to stay contemporary, to be not just from a musical and gear perspective, but from a platform and community perspective, to be 
up on tech? I think it's, you know, it's entirely down to the artist. I mean, a lot of artists don't want to engage. I mean, we were just having a conversation earlier today in the bus about about Instagram. And Howard saying, I don't know how this works. Somebody will have to teach me how this works. I said, well, I've got an Instagram account, but I don't use it. The labels use it to tell people where you are and what you're doing and what's coming out. But um, but the younger guys on the and the the crew and the band they're saying oh no that's the way you've got to go you've got to do that I mean th- luckily they're not young enough to insist we use TikTok yeah. <laughs> uh, which I draw the line at I'm not doing two minute or two second videos and whatever um, I think keeping up with the musical technology is incredibly important I think moving along it's always been something that's fascinated me it's something that's fascinated Howard um, the musical technology is something that's it's amazing. I'm sitting here, I've got my laptop in the corner, and that is my recording studio, it's my video editing unit, it's my entertainment system, it's my communication system, all in one little box. Um, and that's important, you do keep up with it. But the main thing is, you keep your ideas going. You know, the technology is, you can record in many different ways. If you haven't got a good idea, there's no point in recording it. Let's look at it from a community perspective, because the last time I interviewed you, it was during peak COVID months when we were all sheltering in place and you found ways to reach your audience, monetize your art. Did you, what did you learn or did you learn anything from engaging with your community during that period? Yeah. I I mean, you've got to think that, you know, maybe, you know, a couple of decades ago, artists were kind of untouchable. You know, you you could write a a fan letter or or reach out to a label or an agent or something. Now people can access you directly. So you're more of a friend than some someone on a, a you know, a, a high tower. Um, and that kind of stuff is, is really interesting. I didn't know quite what to do. I was in New Zealand when all of this kicked off. I was touring there. And, uh, and we've managed to hobble around most of the Australian tour before we had to cut it short and fly back home, to try and fly back home. And everyone thought, yes, yeah, a six-week, two-month thing, it'll be back to normal. And of course, nobody saw it was two years or plus. Um, so I kind of thought about about the idea of doing concerts from home. But the things I'd seen on the internet were usually just done on a laptop with a built-in camera and the mics. That in the, yeah, the audio was terrible by and Didn't large. sound good, yeah. didn't look particularly good. So in True, my style, I delved into it big time, found out the best cameras I could use, and a little tracking system, little digital uh, visual mixer, uh, you know, using using uh, mics and guitars that go through processing before you, you do it, so it sounds good, and it looks really good. So I had, I had great fun, I'd spent three months researching all of this and building this little mini one-man studio. Uh, in order to reach out and stay connected with people. And it's been an absolute godsend, not necessarily fiscally, but I think emotionally, yeah. to have to have something that's been part of your life that's absolutely natural, that's performing. I've done it since I was 14. Uh, to have that taken away from you, you know, not by choice, but by necessity, is difficult. You know, I found, I found the first few months quite depressing. I mean, we all did, but quite depressing that I had nothing in a diary, everything was gone, everything had changed, the tours were cancelled or postponed and just shelved. So the idea, the prospect of sitting there doing kind of nothing was was dull. So I created something for me to do, <laughs> keep, me, keep me active. In reviewing your 
vast catalog. I want to talk about Answers to Nothing for a moment. After Ultravox called it a day, was that the album you had to make at that point in time? I think I had to make an album where it wasn't we and it wasn't us and it's not what we're thinking, what we do as a unit because uh, Ultravox was very, very much that. Um, it's, it was an album to stand up and be counted and it's a difficult thing to do. You know, you, you're not quite sure who you are as an individual. You've always been part of a package. Uh, you know, as I said, it's a unit thing rather than an individual thing. And Answers to Nothing for me was uh, I had my own studio. I, I was producing it myself. I, I, I just explored a little bit more. I wanted to be more musical, but without being so... As, well, quite as intense as Ultravox ended up getting. We, we, it was so technical at points. It was all, almost like a prog rock band. Uh, and I wanted to do something that was a bit simplified, but equally atmospheric. Uh, and I also wanted to work with other people. You know, I wanted to work with other different musicians. Um, and that inspires you. That's a, a whole different ballgame. It was kind of like being given a pass. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get a pass to go out into the big wide world and tap into all these wonderful other talents that are out there. And that's what Answer to Nothing became. Well, let's talk about working with other people on that album. Kate Bush uh, were, is on a song with you, and she's having a moment right oh, now. Oh, is she ever? Yeah. And I, I'm sure you are thinking, as many of us who are fans of Kate Bush are thinking, what took the world so long to catch back up? It's, it's you know, it, it, the UK music history is littered with people who were groundbreaking, experimental, kind of ahead of their time, who never resonated uh, to the extent they should have, certainly here in the States. You know, Roxy Music, you know, Ultravox, for example. You know, they, they, we, we should have been... We, we kind of... We were the icebreaker, you know, and then all the other ships followed behind and, and you know, won the golden nugget. <laughs> uh, you, had, uh, you had Depeche Mode coming up behind us. You had all of this stuff. Who became huge? Um, you know, and Howard, of course. You know, Howard had, you know, huge success here, commercial success. And Ultravox, I remember when we arrived to do a, I think it was the Vienna tour, and uh, the first interview we did, the guy commented on how well we spoke English because he got us confused with Kraftwerk. He thought we were German. Uh, and, and I thought, well, it, it's, it's, we're dead in the water already. It's just not going to happen, is it? Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Britain's always been on the kind of cutting edge uh, when it comes to experimenting with music. Um, and the type of music we were doing was something that wasn't based uh, in Americana. It wasn't based in the blues. It wasn't right. based in soul. It wasn't based in, you know, rock and roll. It was it was much more European in its mm-hmm. way, and I can see why that would be jarring to people, you know, to to try and get your head around what Vienna was about or or any of those things. I still get chills when I hear Vienna and so, reap the wild so, wind, so all that I, stuff. So do I. It means I'm still alive, which is quite good. <laughs> well, you are still alive, and you keep moving forward. It's interesting. I pulled up in front of the Displays Theater, and on the marquee it said Howard Jones and Midjour. 80s new wave heroes or something. And I thought, that is true. That is what you gentlemen were back in the day. But when you see something like that, I guess it sells tickets, but does it feel limiting? Like, where have you been in the past few decades? Very much so. I mean, everyone seems to think you you only wrote the two or three things that they've maybe heard in the past. 
and that you've been in a you know a refrigerator for the last thirty years doing nothing, frozen in ice, only to be thawed out yeah. to go Let's on eighties tours. Yeah, yeah it's, it's time to wheel them out again. Time for dear God. You know, it's it's funny because and, and of course the the entire industry's changed. You can't you can't possibly think that people who were into what you did thirty years ago have gone through the whole family thing and the kids and the divorces and all of that, and they're still on top of the. The music, you know, things something has right. to give, uh, so they can't follow you uh, to the same extent. People consume music in a very, very different way now, a very different way, and that's kind of detrimental to the artists at times. Uh, but you've just mentioned Kate Bush, you know, when something resonates with people, what is deemed so important isn't important anymore. You know, the periphery of the industry, where how you look or what age you are or you know what clothes you wear. You know, all of that stuff disappears because they've heard a piece of music in a context that they've never expected to hear it in, and that piece of music resonates with them. They get it, and that's what's happened to Kate, and it's brilliant that it has happened. Because when I hear sister and brother, I mean, it sounds like Kate Bush was teleported here from another planet altogether, yeah. that ethereal, like, just bone-shaking voice that she delivers. Stunning. I, I When I asked her if we could do the duet she, she very kindly said yes unfortunately I wasn't in the studio when she did it I sent the multi-track tapes across to her studio on the other side of London and she was in the middle of recording her own album and I thought well she'll, if she gets 10 minutes they might just stick the tapes on she'll go in and just rattle off a quick vocal a couple of days later I got the phone call from Kate saying you know would you like to come and hear what I've done so I went over to her studio Expected to hear a single vocal, and this Kate choir came out. Kate had Kate bushed it, and it was just spectacular. I stood there with a tear in my eye. It was just spectacular. You know, she's a an absolute genius, and it's a term that's been batted about in the music industry way too many times for the wrong people, but not for her. Thinking about that era when Ultravox was coming up, Kate Bush was coming up, Howard Jones was coming up. I'm sure there's a certain comfort, almost like you went to school together with these people. I mean, here you are, you're touring with Howard Jones again. You've done it a few times. There's got to be comfort in that familiarity. Like, you, you've been in the trenches together, mm. and you, you're still doing it in the modern day. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. Um, you've got to remember, we're the first we're the first generation that uh, it, it, didn't, it ceased to become embarrassing to be in the music industry after 25 years old. You know, you, we now have octogenarian rock stars, uh, but every other genre of music um, would have that. You know, if you're a great classical musician, sure. you carry on playing and you usually get better. You know, if you're a great blues musician or a folk musician or, you know, whatever... Pop, rock was always seen as, oh, it's a youth thing. And it's not anymore. It's now, is it good or bad? If it's good, it has a, a legacy way beyond what you ever expected it to have. And you're allowed to carry on doing this. I mean, technology's part of it. You know, everyone can afford a, a laptop and a, a microphone and a guitar or whatever. And you can record here. You can make an album in this room mm -hmm. quite quite easily. Um, and that, that was never afforded to us back in the, the early right. days. So you had to have record company advances. And so the technological changes and the this ageism thing that was involved, uh, you know, maybe 25, 30 years ago, has gone. 
It's all completely gone. You're kind of now respected for still being able to do it. And there's a lot of artists out there who are still really good, still writing brilliant groundbreaking right. stuff. Uh, and they deserve, uh, uh, you know, the, the respect that they're now getting. I think one of the challenges is curation. I mean, back in the MTV days, you knew that that was a channel. That was a way to discover music. Radio served that purpose for a very long time. It, it kind of abdicated its throne a while ago. But sure. I, I think in the modern day, the hardest thing, you mentioned fans who've grown up, had families, divorces, children. It's hard for them to even know where to find stuff. It's not that they don't want to find it, but I, I think in this great openness of the internet where everything's available, I just think it's harder to tunnel through and figure out where to find what you enjoy. It's a needle in a global haystack. It is. You know, it's just a quagmire out there. Because the great thing about technology is, as I said, it allows you to do stuff. The not-so-great thing about it is there's no filtration system. So people who aren't particularly good at it are clogging up the airwaves and the, 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 the ether uh, with, uh, you know, with, with music. So everyone's making music. I mean, there's, I don't know, I just think what the figures are, but it's massive amounts of singles released or, sure. or made, made digitally available. You know, every day. And there's not space for them all. You know, you can't find stuff. So you have to be kind of tuned in. Or in the case of this, you know, I'll be playing to some people tonight who will go, oh, God, I remember him. I remember that stuff. And they might just take five minutes and look you up on the Internet and find your last album. Right. Which is, you know, probably infinitely better than some of the previous albums I've made. You know, as I said, it's a craft. You hopefully get better at what you do. You know, if you're a car designer... Hopefully you're really good by the time you're 75. You're designing beautiful things. It doesn't all just disappear one day. So Fade to Grey is kind of a gateway drug for people to discover the new stuff. Well, I think a lot of the young guys who, who you know created dance music were inspired by Fade to Grey. It's you funny. I, I think the same thing. I, I hear a lot of modern pop music, and I think, oh, I could trace that back to mid-year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could draw a straight line. But that's how music should be. You know, as my guitar playing, people go... You've obviously listened a bit to Mick Ronson or, you know, you've, you've listened right. to your Pink Floyd in the past. That's how it should be. We should all be able to inspire, you know. Every musician on the planet got into what they do because they fell in love with somebody else. They fell in love with what they were doing. You were inspired by the sound or the style or whatever. And we all start by emulating other people and eventually develop your own style. And just mentioning Mick Ronson, of course, you're an unapologetic David Bowie fan as we all are and why not just about every musician on the planet probably owes him a, a nod of respect because he 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 went out his way to make things difficult to make things to change things up you know at the peak of his success with Ziggy he killed it walked away and started doing something else not many artists do that even that last album Black Star mm. which was not an easy listen at first it's one I, I went back to I don't know a year or two ago and thought oh this is just breathtaking. He was writing his epitaph. Yes. You know. It was hard to listen to at first. Yeah, very much so. But it, musically, he was not doing anything conventional, not from a pop music perspective. No, no not at all. And he didn't care, which is, right. I think, the good... I'll paraphrase a fantastic quote he said. He said, if you're, if you're not moving forward, you're standing still, something like that. There's no point in doing it. You have to go out there and make it dangerous for yourself. Yes. So in the spirit of ruining set lists for myself... And this will publish after uh, the Displaying show. You are duetting with Howard mm -hmm. on Do They Know It's Christmas. Yep. How, are you able to connect with the feeling of that moment 
in the present day, when you're performing that on stage, are you able to channel everything emotionally, sociopolitically that, that you were experiencing when you were writing that song? Not necessarily when you're performing it. I, I hadn't planned on performing it. I don't do it very often. Maybe now and again if I'm doing an acoustic show around Christmas, I might throw it in. But it's never been part of a set. It was Howard's instigation. Uh, he wanted to do it. Uh, <laughs> very untimely record, <laughs> yeah, especially if we're touring through the middle of a very warm summer. Oh yeah, no, it's about eighty degrees in the yeah. Chicago area, right? Yes, now. I know. Yes, I know. But the great thing is that the audience it resonates with them, and they sing along, and it's it's you know, it's a little bit of nostalgia. So when you're performing it, no, you're just kind of you're kind of worried you're going to screw up George Michael's part or or you know Bono's line or whatever it is. Um, I'm still very aware of the legacy that, that that thing has left because I'm still part of the Band-Aid Trust, uh, the body of people who look after all the money and the and 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 where and how the song is used and you know the footage from Live Aid and all of that stuff because it's our task, it's our job to monetize that the best way we possibly can. So I'm very aware of its legacy. And the great thing is that the generation, a couple of generations possibly since that came out, um, there's kids singing it in schools, you know, in the Christmas plays. And they'll, it'll be stuck in between, you know, White Christmas and, and, and you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And there's, you know, do they know it's Christmas in the middle? Uh, but the great thing is that the teachers and the parents will tell them yes. why that song was written. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, the reason for it doesn't go away. So still they're generating money. And Bob and I gave the song to the Band-Aid Trust. So you know, we'll, it'll carry on making money long after we're gone. Perfect. Cynically, can we ever, as a planet, as a collective society, get to something like that again? Can we ever tap into some sort of shared concern doing right by others? I mean, I, I'm so, I, I'm, we're recording this at a time when I'm especially cynical of the world. And I think about I think about going to the record store as a kid buying the seven inch of Do They Know It's Christmas and understanding the mission and then watching on MTV, watching Live Aid and just getting it. And mm. I, I worry that we can't we can't get there again. But very we we have tools now that didn't exist back then. Tools that should have made our lives better and more interesting and connected us. And it's just splitters. You know we have smartphones that people say things on phones and messages that they would never dream of saying to someone face to face and it's diversive and it's uh, it, it can be really nasty and I, I kind of blame what we do with phones on a lot of the um, the unhappiness that's going on in the world right oh, now sure. um, uh, so that genie's out the bottle I don't know how you get that back in. I don't know how you revert it. I don't know how you get people to care again. Everyone seems to have their own particular issues. We're on a planet that seems to be in meltdown, you know, politically, uh, emotionally. Um, you know, it, I just find it really odd that that our chosen leaders uh, seem to be looking after themselves rather than the people they're supposed to lead. Um, and that seems to be, you know, all over the planet. Um, you know, so we're in meltdown right now. The UK's followed America and, and a lot of paths. And we haven't got the gun thing yet, but that's a that's a major issue here. Uh, you know, I, I, we we sit and scratch our heads, thinking, "Hold on a second, you're you're buying your children bulletproof backpacks 
and teaching them, you know, how to hide under tables for when a gun, you know, a mad gunman comes in and starts trying to shoot them. And we can't comprehend that at all. For us, it's a quite straightforward thing. Get rid of guns, you know, or, or control it somehow. But there's a there's a mass diversity, and what we we seem to be much more attuned with beating each other up than trying to stand right. together. And the the reason Live Aid worked and Band Aid worked was was we had one voice, you know, one voice shouting in a crowd. You never hear it. You get a crowd shouting the same thing that resonates and bounces around the world. And we don't seem to have that anymore. We've gone tribal. Yes. Mm. All right, let me take things in a different direction. You're on the road with Howard Jones, playing the Displains Theater. Here you are, decades of music that we love and enjoy. What inspires you in the modern day? What what, what keeps you moving forward? Is it performance? Is it creating? Um, I think it's a bit of everything. The performance bit, as I said, I, I really missed. Uh, I haven't really done uh, a tour as such for two and a half years. Uh, so doing this, I have to say, A, top of the list. Selfishly, it's an absolute joy. You know, I'm out there with my guitar, my synthesizer, and, and making a lot of noise, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. The whole process has been has been fantastic. But if you do that too long, you're dreading the whole concept of, oh, I've got to go out and play the same songs again. It and once it, gets to, once it gets to that point, you want to be back in the studio. You want to be creating something new. So even though we're in lockdown, like every other musician on the planet, you started making new material, started writing and creating and exploring a bit, trying things out. So I've been working on three different projects. I've got a follow-up to um, Fragile, uh, which was my last song album as such. I've got a follow-up to Orchestrated, which was the orchestrated version of some of the classic hits. And I've done, I've just completed a, a, an entire instrumental album. Uh, which I'd, I've always done in instrumental music. Every album I've ever done has had a, a track or two on there. But I've never done a complete work. And I sat down and taken my songwriting hat off and put my kind of composing hat on mm-hmm. and sat there and done that. And it's been that's been a great experience. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's atmospheric, it's textural, it's melodic. All of the stuff that I, I really enjoy doing. And the great thing is I don't have to write lyrics. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, along those lines, would you want to score a film? Would you want uh, to- I've done a couple of things in the past and it's it's uh, it's something that I suppose a lot of musicians end up doing that's a graceful way to grow old but I'd miss going out there and dragging my ancient old craggy bones on stage and playing my guitar um, but all of those things you can do you know side by side it's you know it's something I've done in the past it's something I'd like to do maybe a bit more of in the future it has to be the right project all right, mid-year, as we're recording this, we're in Displains. We're in this lovely hospitality area of the Displains Theater. Mid-year, out with Howard Jones, two icons, two legends, two people still making viable, awesome music in the present day. Uh, lovely to talk to you. It's an absolute joy. Thank you.